Good to see you guys. I'm excited to be here with you guys as well. Last week, uh, Acts chapter 2 did the longest sermon introduction in the history of the Summit Church. And I'm going to do you one better this time. I'm going to do the shortest introduction in the history of the Summit Church, okay? I'm going to balance it out. We're going to talk about miracles tonight. We're going to talk about healing. We're going to talk about, yeah, I'm excited too. And uh, we're going to talk about how that, why all this went down a couple thousand years ago. We're going to talk about why it matters today. And that's my introduction. That sound good? All right, all right, thank you. We got a lot of points, a lot of subpoints. I've lost track. So uh, we're just going to work our way through the story, and uh, we'll just jump right in. So the first idea I want to talk to you about is how this story, um, it's something before it's a miracle story. It's, it's not, uh, it is a miracle story, but it's something more than that. And it's a reflection of how um, this is a different kind of movement. That is, it points to how it differenti- or what differentiated the early gospel movement from all other movements in culture and history. Now, let's start walking through the story. Look at me at verse 1. The text says this in verse 1. Now, Peter and John, now remember um, this new Christian movement in its infancy. It's led by um, guys like Peter and John, uh, two apostles sent out by Jesus to continue the advancement of his movement following Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple Remember, they are in Jerusalem at this time, and they are going up to the temple. The temple would have been the epicenter of religious activity in this kind of historically recognized holy city. So Peter and John go to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now, in Jerusalem in this day, there were two different hours of prayer. There was a morning and an afternoon. The morning happened at 9 a.m. That's not the one they're at right now. They were in the afternoon one that would have taken place at 3 p.m., and it was actually the most well-attended hour of prayer um, in the day. Verse 2 And a man, lame from birth, that means he was not able to walk, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So here's the visual image of everything that's about to go down. It is the afternoon hour of prayer. The city is grounded to a halt. Work, kind of everything is is ceasing for people to be able to go with their friends and their neighbors and their coworkers to the temple. Now, this guy who's been lame from birth and consequently is not able to work, and you have to remember this is in a context in historical reality where it's not like he could get like, you know, he couldn't file for like disability insurance or something like that, okay? So what he has to do is he has to be taken by his friends, he's not able to walk, taken by his friends and carried there and laid in the dust and the dirt to be at the beautiful gate. That would have been the most um, frequented uh, avenue to go into the temple. You want to know why? Because it was beautiful. There you go. Uh, they would go into the beautiful gate, and he would lay there on the side of the road and cry out and say, will you give me money so that he could survive? And this is a brilliant strategy if you're trying to survive this way. I mean, think about this. When are we most likely to be generous? It's when um, we're with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, and there's the possibility that we might be judged for not being generous, right? Like, think about this. There's been a shift in the culture, Denver culture. I don't know if anybody's bought, bought coffee around this neighborhood recently, um, but the way you pay for coffee and the way you tip for coffee is differently now. Have you noticed this? Where you pay on an iPad, and then the barista will flip the iPad so that not only you can see what you are going to tip, but everybody behind you sees what you can, you can tip as well. Now, some of you baristas, and some of you are like, oh, you don't like tipping. I love tipping. I tipped before I had to be guilted and shamed into tipping, okay? But, but how is it going? It flips around, and it's like, do you want to tip 10, 15, or 20%? And then if you don't want to tip anything, you have to hit another button that says other amount, and then you have to, and everybody's looking over your shoulder to be like, you're a terrible person. That's why it's taking you so long, is you are a terrible person, right? We're more generous. We're more generous when our friends and our neighbors and coworkers see if we're being generous or not. So this guy is capitalizing on this opportunity. He's coming to this place of worship, and um, he's laying there, and he will cry out for money. Now, one of the guys he encounters is um, 
to the guys he's encountering is Peter and John. Verse 3 says this, Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him. Some translations actually say that Peter looked him in the eye, which is um, beautiful, isn't it? Because even we exist in a neighborhood, and you know, even Larimer Street has a lot of homelessness where people do this. And a lot of times the posture is like, I'm going to walk on the other side of the streets. I'm not going to make eye contact whatsoever. I'm going to pretend like I don't even hear this person. And isn't it interesting that Peter looks him in the eye? Not only that, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. So I'm looking at you, you're looking at me, and he fixes attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Isn't that lovely? A little rain. Settle in. This is going to be a fun one. Okay. <laughs> he fixes attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, here are the point of the first five verses that give us uh, the point of the larger story, is that before this is a story of healing, it's a story of compassion. Okay. Before this is a story of healing, it's a story of compassion. It's a story of what differentiates the early gospel movement from all other historical movements. Because if you study other movements in history, they typically have no tolerance for the weak whatsoever. They accomplish great things, and they plow over the marginalized, the insignificant, the weak, the unable to contribute, and they do it in the name of progress. The chief example of this in our lifetime is Steve Jobs with Apple. I know I give this example a lot, but the reality is, is if you think about the last 20 years, nothing has really impacted our life quite like the movement of Apple and the way we interact with people. And Steve Jobs was a genius, definitely one of the most influential people of the last 100 years. But if you read anything about him, read Walter Isaacson's biography for him, and everybody recognized that Steve Jobs was awful to you if he deemed you as being weak. And what's interesting is everybody even praised him for it as well. They were like, well, that's just what a genius does. A genius is just difficult and you know, has to plow over some people to accomplish really good things. Historically, this is the way that geniuses have always been and great movement leaders have always been. And you're right. The majority of movement leaders are like that. They have no stomach for the weak whatsoever. And how beautiful is it then that Peter is differentiated in this respect, that he not only has a tolerance for the weak, but a unique affection and compassion and love for the weak. Like, where do you think Peter got that idea? Where do you think Peter got the idea? And, and it's interesting, right? Like, Peter is like a really powerful dude at this point, right? Like, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he has just preached um, maybe the best sermon in the history of the world. Like, he preached, and like thousands of people responded. It is every pastor's dream to have this experience. So you're talking about, like, here's this dude who is influential, he's shaping culture, he's turning the city upside down for the glory of God. And probably most of us, even if we're in this moment, we're walking at like the far side of the beautiful gate because it's like, well, if I walk over here, I don't have to lock eyes with him and I won't have to pretend like I'm, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. And Peter goes out of his way at this time, this guy who's fresh off of in Acts chapter two, this huge success, huge influence, and to look this guy in the eyes and say, look at me as well, and to say, you matter. Where do you think Peter got that idea that he, somebody of significance and power, would stoop down to give a unique affection and consideration for somebody that the culture has deemed as insignificant and peripheral? Where do you think he got that idea? From Jesus. Like, all he's doing is reflecting gospel love, and all he is doing is continuing to walk in the way of Jesus, who he did life with as well. All right, so that's first what we see. Secondly, let's question some of the miraculous. Um, let's see what happens next. Verse 6, Peter said, but I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. 
And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So in case you didn't hear what happened, here's what happened. The guy asked Peter for money. Peter says, I don't have any money, but what I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And this guy who has not walked his entire life not only walks, but he's described in verse 8 as leaping and praising God. Now, um, let me pause and acknowledge a tension that probably some of you have felt um, in the book of Acts, where we've seen a lot of miracles unfold in the first three chapters. Um, some of you might be sitting there, and you're particularly skeptical. You might be trying to figure out what you believe and why you believe it. And you might, in this moment, be like, am I the only one who's like weirded out by this like Harry Potter world um, that was going on in the book of Acts, where it just seems like people are zapping people with healing, and are there like infinity stones that are turning back time? Like, what is... Well, I know those... Nerds, I know those are different universes, okay? I'm with you in that, okay? But I'm just saying, I'm just saying, like, sometimes that's what the book of Acts feels like as the apostles are, like, floating around on clouds, like in, like, the old school Mario Brothers games. I'm just going to completely nerd out on you. And um, zapping people with healing and zapping people, and you die, and you get to live, and um, you're like, this is not the way the world works. I don't really believe in a world like this. I don't believe in miracles. I don't believe in the miraculous. I don't believe... Um, that things like this happen. You might even self-identify as a Christian. It's very popular to self-identify as a Christian and say, I follow the teachings of Jesus, but I tend to reject the miracles of Jesus. Now, if that's you, I just want to take a second and say, I'm really glad that you're here. I'm really thankful for that. Let me just speak to you here for a second, and here's how I'd maybe encourage you to process this. Now, all I would say to you is that this is you, and I'm not going to give an extensive apologetic of miracles. I'm just going to say, if you can conceive of a personal God who exists in the universe... And again, I'm not kind of throwing at you like a cosmological argument for the existence of God. But I'm just saying, like, even in this neighborhood that's highly skeptical, I love living in this neighborhood, but it's highly skeptical. What I find in working and being around people is that in spite of the skepticism, almost everybody I interact with feels like and longs for there to be something more to all of this then we are just a bag of bones with blood vessels who have a few decades of existence on this floating rock in the cosmos, and then we die, and like existence goes out like a light. That there's this longing, and I would say even this belief of like, there has to be something more than that. And even an affirmation of, I, I can conceive of that all of this came from somewhere, and so there has to be a God, like a God who is somewhere in the cosmos. Okay, what I would say to you is if you can conceive of a personal God in the cosmos, then that necessitates conceiving of the possibility of that God interrupting the normal rhythms and laws of nature to perform the miraculous for a particular purpose. That's all I would say, okay? I'm going I'm to quote a Christian philosopher by the name of William Lane Craig, and if you want to read more about this, you can YouTube him and listen to him, and he does all sorts of debates about this. But Craig says this, he says, what justification do you have for being closed with the possibility of miracles? As long as the existence of God is even possible, then it's possible that he's acted in history. If there's a transcendent creator and designer of the universe, then clearly performing miracles is mere child's play for such a being. So long as God's existence is even possible, we have to be open to the possibility that he's involved in history. C.S. Lewis, uh, professor of literature at Oxford University, one of the smartest people of the last 100 years, wrote a book called Miracles, diving into this, and he particularly critiqued those people who self-identify as Christians and say, I would affirm the teachings of Jesus, not the miraculous of the scriptures. Lewis would quite poignantly um, 
combat that posture to say this. He would say a naturalistic Christianity, that's basically what I just described, a posture towards Christianity where only the natural is possible, not the supernatural. A naturalistic Christianity leaves out all that is specifically Christian. And there's this tension here um, in the book of Acts that I think can give a little bit of clarification and there's kind of a couple of extremes we're working against. One is the naturalistic ex- extreme that says, like, yeah, 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 they made all this stuff up, or they weren't particularly scientific or medical. It's interesting that this is being written by a medical doctor. I, I love that. Um, so he, like, can differentiate, like, what's healing and what's, like, normal medicine, okay? So he's, he's okay, so we, we don't err on the naturalistic side. On the other side, um, sometimes the book of Acts and sometimes kind of the, the, the story of the scriptures are portrayed almost like this radically different era where um, every single day, every single Christian was going out and like raising people from the dead. And that was just like what Tuesday looked like if you were in the early church. Now, here, here's the tension in this, okay? Is that on one hand, in Acts chapter 2, Luke does tell us that something that characterized the early Christian community was that there were many signs and wonders being done through the apostles. At the same time, I think it's important to recognize that the book of Acts is in many ways a highlight reel of the most significant things the Spirit did through his people in the first, it's roughly 32 years of the history of the church. The book of Acts covers around 32 years. It's 28 chapters long. And we're actually told in detail only about 14 miracles in the totality of the book of Acts. Now, again, I'm not saying there were only 14 miracles. I'm not saying they discontinued. All I'm saying is there's some sort of tension there that God was on occasion, but with some consistency and regularity, as the legislator of the universe who set up the natural scientific law, which we study, and it's a good thing to study that as well, possesses the right as the legislator of that law to interrupt the natural order of things at times, like have a guy who wasn't able to walk his entire life, start to be able to walk for a particular purpose. That's what we're seeing happen here in this particular story. And I think it's perfectly reasonable if you follow the evidence where it leads to be like, oh, this happened in real history. Okay, with all that said, then, let's try to understand the gift of healing. This is where it's going to be fun. you excited to walk through this together? Okay. All right. We uh, got all sorts of points and questions here. I'm going to borrow a decent bit of what I'm about to say here from a guy named um, Andrew Wilson, who is a pastor in the, uh, the UK. So if you want to read more, I'd highly recommend any of his resources. <clears throat> but let me walk through three questions as we try to understand the nature of healing. The first question is this. Why does God heal people? Why does God heal people? Well, we see what emerges from the story are a few reasons. One, God heals people because he loves people. Don't, like, move beyond that too quickly. Like, it's interesting that this guy, that everybody else turns a blind eye to, like, they're probably not even making eye contact with him as they throw their change in his face. And God sees him and says, you matter to me. Like, I love you. I care for you. I see you. I see the pain that you're walking through. And I'm going to totally redeem the story that you're, 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 you're experiencing. So God heals people because he loves them. God heals people because he wants to grow the faith of the people who are witnessing the healing as well. You see that emerge in this story shortly. We'll talk about that here. But here's the primary reason that I think you see healing in the book of Acts, that God heals people to give us a sign of the kingdom, to grow our longing for that kingdom, and to grow our worship of the king of that kingdom. Okay? So God heals to give us a sign of the kingdom, to grow our longing for the kingdom, and to grow our worship of the king 
of that kingdom. Now, I'm using that sign language. I'm borrowing it from Acts chapter 2, where uh, what Luke says characterizes the early church community as many signs and wonders were being done through the, the, the apostles. Okay, so what is a sign? A sign is something that points forward to a particular coming uh, reality, right? So if you're driving west on I-70 and you see a sign that says scenic overlook ahead, you don't pull off on the side of the road and like, start taking pictures of the sign, right? That would be dumb. You know it builds this anticipation. Or to put it another way, it's like a foretaste. Like, um, I, I, one of the things I love about my marriage is that my uh, wife loves making baked goods, and we're a good team because I love eating baked goods. And, um, and uh, she, will, she will at times, before she puts the cookie dough into the oven, she'll ask, does anybody want to lick the spoon? Now, I'm a germaphobe, and uh, I'm deathly f- fearful of like salmonella and things like that, um, but my children have freedom in Christ to lick the spoon, and so they do. <laughs> and so I let them do it. I never do it. I never do it. But like, my kids are super excited to like, lick the spoon. What is that? That's a foretaste, right? Like, cookies are coming. Thanks be to God. Like, that's, all right, that's what a sign does. It builds anticipation. It's a foretaste. It builds the sense of, okay, something is coming. The story of healing that we see throughout the New Testament are signs pointing to the inbreaking, and not only the inbreaking, but the advancement of God's good and gracious rule, that his kingdom is starting to break in, and we're getting tastes and glimpses of heaven on earth. See, what happens a lot of times is we think that because our particular experience right now is one of death, destruction, everybody we know gets sick, everybody we know dies. Um, That's the way it's always been, and that's the way it always will be. But that's not true from a biblical perspective. It's one of the reasons about a month ago we walked you through the story of humanity from a biblical perspective, that it's not just fall, but it's that there's four chapters in whole, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That is, that God, the God of this cosmos, He created and designed the world in such a way that death, destruction, disease, sin, Satan would have no place here whatsoever. But the consequence of sin and the consequence of separation between a holy God and an unholy people is not only we as humanity, but the totality of the cosmos has fallen into destruction. And we, our experience from our birth to our death is one of, we know nothing other than the consequences of the tyranny of the kingdom of Satan sin, death, hell, disease. And it's easy for us to believe that's the way it's always been, that's the way it will always be. But no, we are living in the in-between waiting period of time where creation declared that God never intended the world to be this way, and the restoration that's coming when the King Jesus returns to put the world back together in the way that it was intended to be declares that disease, death, Satan, sin, hell has no place, no authority, and will not exist when the King reigns here on earth as he reigns in heaven as we long for. Thank you. Now, now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Is that we, when healing occurs, like happens here in Acts chapter 3, is there is this inbreaking of the future coming kingdom that shakes us from believing this lie that um, this is all there is. Right, like there's this, this moment of, and can you imagine what this must have been like? And, and a lot of you can, because you, somebody in your life, somebody you love, all week I've gone into different rooms and I've just thought about, like I've, not, I've known what I'm going to teach about. I know it's hard and challenging in a lot of ways. And, and I've not been able to get beyond this thought of the people in the life of our church themselves tasting and experiencing and being choked by death 
and disease and heartbreak and disaster. And, and can you imagine what it would be like when that's been your experience, like this man for his entire life and everybody else, all they know about this guy is like, that's the dude who has to lay in the dust and beg for, for money so he can survive. And for a glimpse, like a glimpse, like a Polaroid picture to be like, oh my gosh, it doesn't have to be this way always. And it's not always going to be this way as well. And this tangible breaking in foretaste of the coming kingdom that leads to everybody who sees it in Acts chapter 3 being filled with awe and wonder and amazement. I mean, that's what it says in verse eight, or verse 9. It says, all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What's happening? What's happening is these people that were used to nothing other than the story of Satan, sin, death, hell, disease, have a glimpse of the king, the true king, a glimpse of the kingdom, the coming kingdom, and they're like, oh my gosh, like that's what we want. That's what we want. We don't want the same. Like we want that. We long for that. Now the second question is this. How often does God heal people? How often does God heal people? Now there's two ways to answer this question biblically. Sometimes and always. Sometimes and always. All right, now let's talk about the, the sometimes, and then we'll talk about the always. I'll point you to the life of the Apostle Paul for the sometimes answer. Um, sometimes what happens in unhealthy Pentecostal circles is what's sort of taught is if you would just have enough faith, and if you would just pray the right prayers, you wouldn't get sick anymore. Now, there's a lot of problems with that. One, it's not biblical, so it's already a big deal. Um, but also, experientially in people's lives, um, experientially in people's lives, it compounds hurt because it's sort of this feeling of like, God's just sort of from a distance being like, you didn't say it the right way, and uh, yeah, that's why you're in so much pain and have cancer. And you're like, boy, like what, what a loving God. And I would just say to you, um, that's not the way that we see healing biblically whatsoever. And the thing about Paul is we see in his life, I mean, he has somebody with a gift of healing, he has incredible healings, but one of the things we see in Paul's life is he's only able to heal sometimes. Like, here's the thing, if it's about the amount of faith, you know who we all lose to in a contest of amount of faith? Paul. Like, you all lose. We all lose. Like, so it's about amount of faith. Um, you know, Paul would have won every single time. But Paul, one of the most faithful, influential followers of Jesus in the history of the world, I mean, look at his example. Sometimes he's able to heal. So I'll give you when he could heal and times where he wasn't able to heal. So for example, he heals a disabled man at Lystra in Acts 14. He heals many in Ephesus in Acts 19. He heals a demonized girl in Philippi in Acts 16. He raises Eutychus from the dead in Acts 20. That's a big one. Like, that's impressive. Uh, we'll, we'll get there, okay? <clears throat> but feel the tension here. But then cannot heal himself from a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12 or a sickness when he preaches in Galatia in Galatians 4, or Timothy of stomach ailments in 1 Timothy 5, or Epaphroditus from life-threatening sickness in Philippians 2, or Trophimus, who he had to leave ill at Miletus in 2 Timothy 4. And so we see this odd tension in the life of Paul, one of the most faithful, influential followers of Jesus in the history of the world, able to only heal sometimes. So we said the answer is sometimes, we said the answer is always. Now, here's the portion of the sermon that I most have been asking the Spirit of the last week to help you actually believe. Um, and I think the best parts of a sermon are the parts where it's not like, hey, I'm going to tell you a story about a dog that'll make this make perfect sense for you and it'll radically change your life. If you're looking at that for me, like you're at the wrong place. Um, we want to cultivate within you the type of fruit that only God himself who indwells you can cultivate. 
No person. No person. And here's where I particularly feel this tension, is that for those of you who've been on the other side or the negative side of the sometimes, for the spirit to transform within your heart and your mind and your spirit and soul, the posture of your understanding of God's answer to our request for prayer is sometimes yes, is sometimes wait, is never no. Does that make sense? It's sometimes yes. Like sometimes God, like we see in, lives, in the life of Paul, is sometimes God's like, yes, Eutychus, you're raised from the dead. It's sometimes wait. It's never known that God always, fully, perfectly heals his children. Now, this is not, this, it's interesting because people knew, you know, this story was next, and people were like, are you worried about the controversy of talking about healing? And I'm like, no, like, the Apostles' Creed affirms healing. Like, that's a wide belief net, okay? Um, like, we as followers of Jesus, we believe in healing. Um, there might just be a difference in terms of, like, when does it actually happen? So the Apostles' Creed, for example, declares that um, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, amen. That is that we as followers of Jesus universally, in an echoing and affirmation of the scriptures proclaim the king will return, the kingdom will fully be established, and one of the beautiful byproducts of this is that, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be with his people. Let me start that again. He will dwell with them, they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. This should transform our understanding of healing, and I think in a lot of ways demystify um, it in a lot of ways that when we come to God and ask him to heal us, our kids, friends, family, non-Christians in our spheres of influence, that we're like, would you just like do something miraculous, God, so they couldn't have any more excuse not to believe? What we're asking for is not some super spiritual exclusive gift, but it's that all we're asking to do is for God to accelerate a future promise secured blessing into the present. Like, would you just give us the thing that you've secured, that you're going to give all Christians everywhere for all of eternity? Could you just like accelerate a little bit into my life, in my kids' life, in my friend's life, so that we might like taste and see what life in the kingdom underneath the good and gracious rule of the king will be like. Like, would you give that to us just like a little bit early? And it just like expands this confidence of like, okay, you're going to do it. Like, could you just like accelerate it a little bit? Could you just give it a little bit early? Please, God. Please, God. Please, God. And so receive this. Receive this. When we ask God for healing, the answer is sometimes yes. It's sometimes wait. It's never no for his kids. It's never no for his kids. And that should expand our confidence as we come to him and ask him for this gift in our lives. Three, <clears throat> how does God heal his people? How does God heal his people? Well, um, it says it right here that it's through faith in the name of Jesus that his healing occurs. I love this about Peter. And again, this sort of demystifies the gift of healing because I think, you know, even if you're here right now and your posture is one of like, okay, I'm okay believing this can happen probably the next thought in your mind is like, it could never happen through me. Like, my quiet time last Wednesday does not measure up to be ready to, like, heal the people around me. I just don't feel, I don't have that sort of faith. I don't have that sort of power. I don't have that sort of obedience. And the thing I love so much about Peter is he's like, I'm not like this, like, wizard-level uh, Christian. Like, I'm not this guy with this unique influence, unique power. I, 
like, it's interesting. The, the one thing he wants everybody to know is it's not because of me. Like, I'm not a healer. I know the guy who heals. Like, that's basically what Peter's saying. Like, I'm not a healer. I know the guy who heals. Look at what he says in verse 12. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? Do you understand what he's saying there? I don't possess a power in myself. I don't possess an obedience in myself that led to this guy who couldn't walk being able to walk. Okay, well, how did you do it then, Peter? Well, tell us in verse 16. And his name, that's the name of Jesus, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So God heals this man through Peter, not because Peter possesses a particular power or obedience, but because Peter begs for an inbreaking of the power that belongs exclusively to Jesus and accessible to all believers everywhere through the gift of the gospel, that Jesus' exclusive right to reign and rule over disease, sickness, and death would break into the lives of the people around us that we love and God sees and cares for as well. And again, there's this tension. We'll, we'll flesh it out here in the next point. But there's this tension of, on one hand, we don't want to create the system of like, well, just have enough faith and um, everybody will get healed. Like we, we see from Paul's life, that's not the way that it works. At the same time, we have to have the faith to ask. We have to have the faith to say, I know this sounds crazy. And I, I just, I, but like, God, would you heal me? Like, would you heal my kids? Would you heal my friends? Would you heal my coworker? Like, would you, would you do this? The faith, that's what he says, by faith in his name, verse 16, in his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong. Now, <clears throat> here's what I want to talk about as we cl close. I say close like I'm going to be done in like 30 seconds. I'm not. Um, here's my last point. Uh, <laughs> I want to talk about what this means in the life of our church. And um, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and uh, a lot of ideas, but I, I want to try to be as succinct as possible to basically give you kind of three big things I've been praying for, even in our, um, our pre-service gathering prayer. And like, I've just asked everybody to pray for this. And okay, what would be the fruits that I would see happen in the life of our church from Acts chapter three? I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you three. The first is this is that we would have an increased expectation. And with this, I just asked a question rhetorically all week of myself. What if when we gather together, we'd anticipate more than an event, but an encounter with the living God? So when we gather together, we'd anticipate more than an event, but an encounter with the living God. And I think the, the default posture, the instinctual posture, is that we come into church the same way we go into any other space with this sort of posture of like, this is a cool thing to be at, you know, like, it's like going into a brewery, and it's like, I'm going to come in here to consume beer, and I'm coming to the church to consume religious goods and services, and, uh, you know, I'm kind of interested in religion, and their place, I'm kind of interested in beer, and, uh, yeah, like, what's, what's the big difference? Now, I'm not anti-brewery, uh, I'm a good Denverite, um, but, but here's the thing, here's the thing is there should be something uniquely anticipatory and expectant in your heart when you come in this space, when the people of God dwell together to proclaim the kingdom and the king. Like, there should just be this posture of, like, something is going to happen here that doesn't happen any other place. It's not even going to happen, like, in my private devotional life. I'm not anti that. I'm not anti-podcast. I'm not anti-worship music. I'm not anti 
quiet time, any of that sort. I'm just saying, though, that when we come together and the body of Christ gathers together, there should be this expectation that unlike any other place I'm going to this city or in this neighborhood, I'm going to taste and see and experience the body of Christ together. Like, we're going to put flesh on this thing, we're going to flex together, and we're going to see the strength and the unparalleled beauty of Christ on display. And what if we came in with that posture week in, week out, with this posture of expectancy of, like, God's going to meet us, God's going to meet his people, and he's going to change some people's lives. Like, change some people's lives in the way their lives aren't changed anywhere else in this city. All right, two, an increased faith, an increased faith. And so here's the question I was asking. What if in our times of response, we had a culture of both asking boldly and praying boldly? Here's where we as the body of Christ, we have to step out in faith together. Um, you guys as our, as our members, or maybe you're stepping towards membership, we as leaders, where a lot of times I just feel like, I just, I'm trying to like love what we do, but to push us to something better. And, and I just, I, I would love it if we could be the type of church that when we gather together, when we have times of response, when we invite you for prayer, when you're in the space, um, the thing that leads you to a place of asking for prayer from the people around you would not be like something as severe as like, I'm going to die tomorrow or my marriage is going to end this week. Like, I think a lot of times that's what happens is like the only thing that will lead to us actually being vulnerable is things are so bad. We're like, I have no other choice other than ask for prayer. And a lot of times I think we think things are so small and so insignificant. We don't want to burden other people. We don't want to burden God whatsoever. That's not what you're seeing in the scriptures whatsoever. But instead, this audacious, radical, regular rhythm of ask, like casting our burdens upon God. And I'm with you in this. Like I was thinking about this. I'm not trying to throw shade at you. Like I feel this in myself where it's like even this past week, um, like we got the lottery result, like we're trying to get our oldest daughter into kindergarten. So we had to go through the, the public school lottery and Hannah did not get into the school that like she really wants to go to. She's waitlisted. She's 37th on the waitlist right now. Now here's the way I typically respond to that is I typically get anxious and think about it. And then I get anxious and I think about it. And then I maybe send like one text and I'm like, yeah, if you could pray for this. And I don't know if I really believe that's going to do something about it. And I just, I told my wife, I was like, I want to, I'm like so excited for Sunday to receive prayer for this in our lives. Like I'm just so excited. And like we to, she comes at the nine o'clock, and so we were like, like we had to wait in line um, to receive prayer, which was beautiful. But it was like it was like we'll wait, we'll, we'll wait, and we'll cast our burdens upon the Lord. And why the reason I say that's a reciprocal is like you have to step out in faith. But we as leaders and people who are praying have to step out in faith as well, where a lot of times I feel like we're afraid to almost ask big things of God. It's almost like, are we putting him on trial? Are we questioning him? What if he doesn't answer that prayer? Is he not God anymore? And I'm like, that is just, that's not the way we should be thinking. We should, in the wake of the legacy of Acts chapter 3, be asking huge things of God and expecting huge things from God over and over and over again as a people when we gather together. Third and finally, an increased persistence and increased persistence. And that word persistence is, I feel like, the word the Lord gave me this week. Um, we do a, a, a midweek prayer on Wednesdays at 12 in this room. We'd love to have you here this Wednesday. And it, it, was, it was really beautiful. I feel like the Lord really gave me this word. Um, and I was walking around here, and I wrote it down. I wrote it down. Here, here it is. Here's the picture of it. Um, that's my Marvel backpack, in case you thought I was more professional than I really am. Uh, <laughs> I'm not... Uh, I know you can't read it, but I just felt like, I wrote it down. I was like, oh, like, the Lord can move in, in, a, in a lunchtime hour of prayer. 
Uh, so since you can't read it, here's, the, here it is, here's what I'm thinking. Is, um, the question I've been asking myself is, I wonder what sort of blessings I miss out on because I never ask or I only ask once and assume the answer is no. And then um, here's what I wrote. Is that persistence isn't a reflection of annoyance, but rather dependency, intimacy, and trust towards our Heavenly Father. Now here's what I mean when I say this, and this is where it's really been like drilled down into my soul. Is I don't know if anybody else is like this, but I hate being a burden. Um, I really hate that. And I take that posture I take towards people, and I take it towards God as well. And so I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to stuff stuff. I'm going to kind of internalize it. Um, I'm not going to really bring it to God. Or if I bring it to God, I'm going to ask once, and um, I'm going to kind of trust that he knows what's best. And I'm going to take this posture of passivity, and God, you work it out, and I don't really want to question you. Now, the problem with that is it's not biblical. That's the only problem with that, which is a pretty big problem uh, to have, have, have with it. Like, the scriptures praise, and I would say even mandate, persistency in prayer. Like asking God for the same thing again and again and again and again. Now, here's the thing, is if you don't think about God in the right way, you're not going to pray this way. Now, if you think about God like a governmental uh, agent, um, you're not going to, you know, like the government, you ask a question and they either say yes or no, and there's like nothing you can do once they say no. So for example, I am in the process of applying to uh, have a parking permit to park in front of my own house. Um, and the government said no. <laughs> and they said no. And I'm like, they just sent an email saying no. Like, there wasn't like, hey, contact this person. Come see us. It was just like, nope. I mean, it was a little bit more other than that. Okay? So it's just like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to persist. I don't even know what to say. Um, that's a talk for another time. Uh, but, but here's the interesting thing. Is what if God is not a, a, a governmental agent? What if God is a heavenly father who loves us and cares for us? You know where persistency is like really beautiful is in a way that a kid who knows that their parents love them asks them for the same thing again and again and again. And my kids are like this. Like they ask for the same thing again and again and again. I know the PM, like we have the least number of parents. And I think sometimes it's easy from a distance to assume that like when your kid asks you for the same thing again and again and again, what's happening there is like trying to be frustrating or annoying. You know why a kid asks their parent for the same thing again and again and again? Because they trust that parent, unlike anybody else in their life. Like some of you are parents, I would just like receive that right now. Like your kid's not trying to annoy you. They trust you. They trust you. They trust your heart. They trust your goodness. They trust your character. They don't ask anybody else for that. Like, I was thinking about this. Like, my daughter, she's five. We adopted her from Taiwan, and we, we love her culture. We help her understand her culture. We talk about how beautiful Taiwan is, and consequently, like, Hannah really wants to go to Taiwan. Like, she doesn't understand why we don't live in Taiwan because we talk so positively about it. She's like, there's nowhere else in the world that's as good as Taiwan. So, like, why don't we live in Taiwan? And so her, her normal rhythm, this happened yesterday. I, was at a, I did a wedding last night. I was at a wedding last night, and Hannah just started um, spring break from preschool, um, which is just a funny thing. Um, <laughs> for two days a week preschool, she needed a break. Uh, uh, but I was asking her last night at this wedding. She was my wedding date last night. And I asked her, I said, um, so what do you want to do for spring break? And she's like, I want to go to Taiwan. I want to go to Taiwan. Like, all the time. It's like, like what, do you want to do be, what, do you, what do you want for being um, so good today? I want to go to Taiwan. Like, all the time. Again and again and again. She doesn't ask anybody else that. She doesn't request that of anybody else. So why is she persistent in that request? Because she trusts my heart. Because she trusts my provision. Because she trusts me. And she just comes again and again and again. And how much more, how much more does our Heavenly Father love us and invite us into a relationship 
of asking the same thing again and again and again. And you're not annoying him. You're not burdening him. You're not being faithless. But instead, you are trusting his heart unlike any other entity in the totality of the universe. And we come to him in our longing for healing, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it is, our yearning and our craving God, like, would I be healthy? This thing about me that, like, I don't like about me. Would this change? Like, I used to believe that this is going to be the way I am for the rest of my life. I want to change. This thing about my spouse, the sp- like, they're going to be like this. We can gotten prayers for this all day. Like, like I'm really, I want to re-believe that the patterns in my marriage that aren't healthy um, can be broken, can be broken. Just because it's been this way for six years doesn't mean it has to be this way for the next 60 years. Um, this, this sickness in our family that the doctor said again and again and again, there is no hope, this spiritual bondage and tyranny that I live underneath, this false belief of God that I slip into again and again and again, and I also believe the lie that it's going to be this way for the rest of my existence, that we, rather than being complacent, rather than being apathetic, rather than being passive, go to our Heavenly Father who has infinite resources in the cosmos and can do anything, like he can do anything in his believers. As Paul would proclaim in Romans chapter 8, if the Spirit of God who resurrected Jesus from the dead and dwells us as well, that he can be victorious, not just over death, but disease and everything less than death and disease as well. And it should increase our confidence and faith to go to him again and again and again. Would you heal me? Like, would you heal me? Like, would you heal me? Would you heal my friends? Would you heal the people in my city group? Would you heal my neighbor? Would you heal my coworker? Would you heal my enemy? Even like, would you heal again and again and again? Because our persistency in prayer is not a reflection of our distrust or our annoyance, but our intimacy and our dependency and our relationship with a God who loves us, who loves us. So I'm gonna invite you, I'm gonna invite you into a space to be able to do that. I wanna pray and ask that God would stir us up to be able to do that by the power of his spirit, and, um, and then we'll talk about how to respond. Lord, we love you. We're thankful for you, and we're just thankful for the gift of healing in the scene. It seems, I, I get it seems like, wow, uh, you still work this way, and um, I just pray even right now for people who are skeptical that you would increase our faith and our confidence that the same God um, who did work in real history like this 2,000 years ago. It's the same God who is reigning, ruling, and moving today as well. God, would you do that? Would you cultivate that within us? Would you expand our faith and anticipation of what can happen? God, let us wrestle with that tension, um, but also the beautiful tension, that as we come to you and ask for healing um, as your kids, the answer is never no. Like, thanks be to you, the answer is never no. It might be yes, it might be a wait, but you always heal us eventually in your perfect timing. And so God, let us come to you now with a posture of dependency to say, like, would you heal us? Would you heal us, God? Let us respond well in this time by the power of your spirit. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.